you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, or use the Pew Bible. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Let us pray before we reflect on this. Lord, uh, in, in your word, your word is compared to a sword that is sharp, that is two-edged, and that pierces our hearts. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would wound us with your word, that you would pierce it into our hearts not to harm us, but rather to bring us health. With your word like a sword, you would do heart surgery on us, making us whole and restoring us as we reflect and study your word together. Let my words not be a hindrance, but rather use them to proclaim your word. By the power of your spirit. Amen. It's not uncommon when you're out for a hike to spend a few miles on switchbacks in the woods. And then oftentimes you'll come to a clearing or an opening in the trees when you can see how far you've come and how far you've yet to go. This morning we've reached an opening in the woods of Ephesians. A good spot to look back and see how far we've come and where we've yet to go. Readers have long noted that there's a shift between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Up to this point in the book, there has only been one command, one imperative used. It's in chapter 2, verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ. Three chapters, and that's been the only command. And yet, beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 6, Paul uses 40 different imperatives. Okay, so there's a shift from describing to commanding, exhorting. Up to this point, Paul shows us what God is like. Rich in grace, majestic in his governance of all things. Paul narrates what God is doing in the world. How he is at work through the cross to unite all things in Jesus Christ. How by his spirit he has sealed and united a people who are Christ's body. Paul has told us how Jews and Gentiles fit together in this body and how his mission fits with, how Paul's own mission fits within this grand plan. Paul teaches us about our identity in Christ, and we've been reflecting on this theme as we've studied Ephesians. We are saints, we are called, we are adopted heirs, we are Christ's body, we are raised with Christ, we are God's masterpieces, we are part of one new humanity, we are stones in God's grand building project. Okay, that's where we've been over the past several months through the book of Ephesians. Now looking ahead, Paul shifts directions and says, if this is what God is like, if this is what the world is like, 
if this is your identity in Christ, then you must live in a certain way. We must live in a way that is consistent with our identity in Christ. Our identity entails attitudes and behaviors that must be cultivated. In chapter 4, immediately ahead of us, that we'll spend the next couple weeks in, Paul focuses on how this plays out in the life of the church. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he applies it to specific relationships. If you're a member of Wiser Lake Chapel, you may remember uh, being asked some membership vows. And the last of those asked, will you seek the peace and purity of the church? And that seems to be Paul's focus in chapter 4, the peace and the purity of the church. Or in other words, we might say the unity and maturity of the church. Paul argues in verses 1 through 6 that we're looking at this morning that we must seek peace and unity within the church. In verses 7 through 16 that we'll look at next week, he shows how our diverse gifts contribute to this unified body that builds itself up in love. And then in verses 17 through 32, Paul argues that we must also seek the purity and maturity of the church. We must seek the peace and the purity together. And the key to holding those together is found in verse 15. Paul exhorts us to practice and speak truth in love. Truth in love. This morning, though, we're just looking at the first part of this larger theme, Christian unity. And in these dense few verses, Paul lays out a brilliant and timely agenda for what unity looks like. In our day, it's much needed. Many see a lack of social cohesion, a sort of disintegration of society roundabout. And people look for community in a variety of groups that are united around all sorts of ideas or ideologies or principles or common interests. Yet these niche communities so often offer an oppressive unity. You must be perfect to be part of that community, according to however they define perfection. It's unity based on everyone looking the same, or acting the same, or dressing the same, or talking the same, or voting the same, or thinking the same. And from high school lunchrooms to the work world to the media, we see almost daily people who are exiled from their chosen community for breaking the implied rules of their group. If you don't conform to the standards, you're out. Well, we all long for some kind of community, but what kind? Can we really live up to the standards of these oppressive communities, this oppressive unity? Paul offers a different way. He sets a different way before our eyes this morning. He offers three lessons about Christian unity in this passage. First, Christian unity depends on walking in love. Second, Christian unity must be guarded. And third, Christian unity reflects God. To begin with, Paul teaches in verses 1 and 2 that Christian unity depends on walking in love. Christian unity depends on walking in love. Paul's initial command in verse 1 is, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then in verses 2 and 3, and indeed the rest of the book, it spells out what this looks like to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul has referred to our calling a number of times in the book of Ephesians, 
And here he refers to a general calling that is heard by all Christians. It's a calling to follow the Messiah, Jesus, as our king. And Paul says if we're going to follow after King Jesus, if we're going to heed this call, there's a fitting way that we should walk, and it's fundamentally characterized by love. And Christian unity depends on us walking in this way. In verse 2, Paul spells out what this manner of walking that we're to have looks like using five qualities. First, we're to walk with all humility and gentleness. Humility was a common Greek word, but up until Paul's day, it described a negative trait, something that no one wanted to be. It meant being poor, lowly, obscure, even weak and servile. It certainly was not a virtue that people sought to cultivate. And we have the same instinct today. No one wants to be poor. We want to be comfortable. No one wants to be obscure. We want to be influential. But for the Christian, humility is a virtue that must be cultivated as we learn who we are in light of who God is. It, in fact, reflects Christ's own character. In Philippians 2, Paul instructs that church, in humility, count others better than yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be hoarded, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christians are called to walk in humility because it's the way Christ himself walked. The second quality, gentleness, was viewed more positively in Paul's day. Aristotle, for example, thought gentleness was the golden mean, or we might say the sweet spot, between getting too angry and never getting angry. In Galatians, Paul says gentleness is, in fact, a fruit of the Spirit. The idea of gentleness combines strength with self-control. And we see a clear picture of what gentleness looks like from the natural world. When a lioness who can kill a zebra by biting its neck gently carries her cub by the nape. We see in the lioness carrying her cub total mastery of her of her powerful jaws, total self-control. Humility and gentleness are essential to Christian unity. Disputes, conflicts, fights, they're always about something. But the hidden ingredients are pride, vanity, and a lack of self-control. We want our way. We know our idea is best. We take it as a personal slight when others disagree with us and we lose our tempers. And yet, how different would these conflicts play out if we were committed to walking together in humility and gentleness through conflict? Third, Paul commands patience. Like gentleness, patience is numbered among the fruit of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says patience is a characteristic of love. He says we must practice patience or long-suffering with frustrating and annoying people. Fourth, this is further described as bearing with one another. 
All these qualities uh, that Paul names here are relational. They shape how we interact with other people. But patience and bearing with one another especially presuppose that as we live together in community with others, those others, other Christians like ourselves, will fail, they will sin, they will be frustrating. Hurting broken people hurt others. The church is not a community of perfect people. It's a community of hurting people. And there will be times when you need to be patient. There will be times when you need to bear with others. And finally, Christian unity depends on walking in love. The common Christian identity is that we are all following Jesus as king. But this doesn't mean that we're all at the same point on that journey. Some have been walking on this journey for decades. Others are just starting out. And so we bear with one another, recognizing that people are at different points in the church. And so we're going to bump into other Christians who are annoying, who are immature, who are frustrating, who are sinful, who are broken, and as a result can be hurtful to those around them. And so Paul says we do this in love. We live together in love. This quality embraces and qualifies the four others. Bearing with each other in love means seeking each other's good. It's not simply ignoring their sins or faults, but actively trying to help them. Uh, This week I stepped on a little piece of glass as I was heading to bed. And initially I thought I'd just scratched my foot, and so I went to bed and ignored it. But the next morning when I got out of bed and put weight on my foot, I realized, oh no, there's something wrong with my foot. There's something in there. And so Kelsey had to dig out uh, some broken pieces of glass out of my foot. Not a pleasant experience. And I think that's a good picture for what Paul's commending here. Uh, Bearing with one another doesn't mean just ignoring the problem, like the glass in my foot. Rather, in love, we patiently help each other and bear with each other. And that process is at times even more awkward and painful than having glass dug out of your foot. It's not easy, but it's necessary if we're going to seek each other's good. Christian unity depends on our willingness to walk in love. We see Paul's second lesson on Christian unity in verse 3. Christian unity must be guarded. Christian unity must be guarded. Paul's language here is urgent. You must be eager. You must give yourself wholeheartedly to maintaining unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As we've already seen in chapter 2, and we'll see again in verse 4 in just a moment, Christian unity is created by the Holy Spirit, not by us. And yet we must maintain it. We must guard what the Spirit is doing. And Paul is emphatic. Seeking Christian unity is not optional. It's an essential part of the Christian life. Now, you might be wondering, if the Spirit creates Christian unity, why do we need to guard it? Isn't it God's work? And if there's only one body, as Paul says in verse 4, then why do we see churches split up all the time? What is this about? Here we need to make some sort of a distinction, such as that made by the Westminster Confession and other Reformed Confessions, between the invisible church and the visible church. 
The invisible church is the church from God's point of view. All those whom he has called out of the world to himself. And here there is a real and inseparable unity. All those who God has called are united in Christ. On the other hand, the visible church is the church here on earth that we see round about us. All those who confess the Christian faith along with their children. And in the visible church here on the earth, there is obvious and visible disunity. So when Paul says in verse 3 that we must be eager to maintain what the Spirit is making, we might gloss this as saying we must be eager that in the church, God's will, as we have prayed this morning, God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. That the earthly church might reflect the church from God's point of view. We must work to maintain a visible unity here on earth that points to the unity of the church in God's sight. And this means, as John Stott puts it, working towards actual, concrete relationships of love. Stott uses a helpful illustration of this point. He says, imagine a family, let's say called the Smiths, that over time grows bitter with each other, and now the parents don't talk to each other anymore, and the kids are so frustrated that the kids quit talking to the parents and don't want to have anything to do with the family. Now, if these Smiths were your cousins, what would you say? At one level, you'd say, yes, dad and mom are still married. Uh, these are their kids. Legally and in reality, they are one family, the Smiths. And yet, as a cousin, wouldn't you also urge them to work toward real visible unity and peace as a family? Likewise, Christians, we are all part of one family, although it doesn't always look like it if you look around. But we must work for Christ the unity of the church that is already a reality in God's sight. It seems to me that this lesson applies at three different levels. First, at the level of the local church, we must guard and maintain Christian unity. Left unmaintained in the local church, Offenses lead to resentment. Petty disputes compound into church splits. And so Paul urges us to guard unity by bearing with one another in love. By doing the hard work of living together in community. It takes work. But in addition to guarding the unity within our individual church, we must also seek unity between churches. This means we must cultivate Christian unity second with other churches, with churches in other areas, and third with churches in other traditions. In God's sight, they're all part of one church, and so we must work towards unity. As Stott says, it's important to develop actual concrete relationships of love with churches in other areas for the mutual edification of the churches and to guard the peace and purity of the church as a whole. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith wisely guides us, saying, for the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods and councils. There needs to be some mechanism for churches from around the world to agree on things. Reflecting on our own situation here at Wiser Lake Chapel, simply joining a denomination so that we can put a fancy logo on our sign out front is of no value whatsoever. But for both the health of our church and for the health of other churches, 
we need, it's important to work towards unity with other churches, perhaps through synods or assemblies composed of churches in other areas. We need to have some way of developing concrete, real relationships of love. Churches need to support each other, and they need to check each other. Third, however, it's not just churches in other areas that we need to develop unity with or seek unity with, but churches in other traditions. If you drive around the North County, you'll note there's more types of churches than you can shake a stick at. Now, multiple congregations in an area like ours is not a problem in and of itself. It's simply a function of growing churches. Eventually, too many people are in one church, and so you start a second church. That's not a problem in and of itself. But we must seek unity amongst those churches. There needs to be fraternity, working together with churches of different traditions. As I was reflecting uh, this week on this passage, it, it struck me that uh, you may know uh, George Whitfield uh, was a colleague of John and Charles Wesley. They all three together were involved in a series of revival meetings during the Great Awakening. Well, Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist, and yet the, the, the Wesleys, of course, led to the Methodist church tradition. And I, I started thinking, I wonder when the last time Methodist churches and staunchly Calvinist churches met together for a revival meeting. And yet in the 17th, 18th century, that's what they were doing. And so there does need to be some mechanisms for working together, concrete relationships of love. As we'll see over the next several weeks, this does not mean that we can compromise the truth of the gospel simply for the sake of some superficial unity. But neither can we simply ignore Paul's command to seek unity amongst various churches. Speaking again as a Reformed church, it strikes me that at times Reformed churches can be a bit like the steward in Jesus' parable who is given a talent and he says, I know that you're a hard master, so I buried the talent in a ground so I wouldn't lose it. And so here I dug it up and here it is. And we're a bit like that, that we know God wants a pure church and so we don't want to have anything to do with any other church uh, lest we risk our purity. And I suspect God's response when he returns might be a bit like the master's response in Jesus' parable. Is why didn't you do something? At least put it in a bank. Why didn't you have some way of trying to work towards the reunification of the church? N.T. Wright comments on this verse that we're looking at. Unless we are working to maintain, defend, and develop the unity that we already enjoy, and to overcome, demolish, and put behind us the disunity we, ourselves, uh, we find ourselves in, we can scarcely claim to be following Paul's teaching. Paul's words here are clear. Christian unity must be guarded, both within the church and between churches. Why is Paul so emphatic? Why is it so important to guard Christian unity? Why is it so essential? Here we come to the third basic lesson in our passage. Christian unity reflects God. Christian unity reflects God himself his character, and his way of working in the world. Paul drives this home, point home in verses 4 through 6 in creedal, almost hymnic language, repeating the word one over and over seven times. Christian unity reflects the Christian God, who although a trinity of persons is one God. Hear Paul's words again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope, that belongs to your call, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Christian unity reflects God. First, in verse 4, there is one body of Christ, the church, universal, because there is only one Holy Spirit who unites all believers to Christ. The one body has one spirit. In Acts 10, we see this played out in a narrative. In that story, a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius has a vision where he is told to have the apostle Peter come to his house and preach to him. And Peter responds to this request. He comes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius gathers together all of his relatives into his household, all his extended family, and Peter declares to them the good news about all that has happened in and through Jesus Christ. And totally unexpectedly, the Holy Spirit descends on Cornelius and his whole household just as the Spirit had earlier descended on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And so for Peter, as well as for Paul, this is definitive proof. There is one Spirit, and so Jews and Gentiles, in fact, all people, are part of one body together. Next in our passage here, Paul returns to our call. There is only one hope to which all Christians are called. We're at different points in our journey of faith, of following and responding to Christ's call. But although we're in different places, the end point is the same for all of us. We are all aiming at Christ Jesus himself. That is all of our hope. Paul continues, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Quite a bit is stuffed into these six short words. Paul refers to Jesus as Lord. This is the same word that was used in Paul's Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the divine name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, Remember, a few weeks ago in the evening, we looked at Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now Paul says of Jesus Christ, He is one Lord. In the next verse, Paul writes, there's only one God. He's not saying there's some new God alongside the one Lord. And yet, in some mysterious sense, Jesus Christ is included within the divine identity of the one God of Israel. Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul doesn't develop a full, detailed doctrine of the Trinity at this point but all the pieces are right here in front of us. If there's only one Spirit, one Lord, one God, and Father of all, the inevitable conclusion that's unavoidable is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are included within the one divine life. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the basic confession of the Christian faith is this. Jesus is Lord. This is the one faith that all Christians affirm. And the sign of this relationship, of our union with Christ, of our participation in his death and resurrection, is our one baptism. And so all who are baptized into Christ are his, regardless of where or when they were baptized, or what kind of minister it was who baptized them. Finally, drawing it all together, Paul concludes, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
Christian unity reflects God himself. There is only one God, and from his point of view, there can only be one church, one body of people whom he has called out of the world. The one God is overall. The church is dependent on him. But God is also working through all and in all believers. We see both God's sovereignty over all and his intimacy, working through all and in all. John Stott sums up the logic of these verses quite nicely. He writes, We are now in a position to repeat the three affirmations, this time the other way round and in the order which the persons of the Trinity are normally mentioned. First, the one Father creates one family. Second, the one Lord Jesus creates one faith, hope, and baptism. Third, the one Spirit creates the one body. Christian unity is an essential part of our Christian walk. And Christian unity depends on walking in love. Christian unity must be guarded because Christian unity reflects God himself. Taking Paul's teaching seriously, we can see it leads to a totally different kind of community with a different kind of unity than that on offer in the world roundabout. This is not a unity based on being perfect, on perfectly conforming to community standards. No, it's actually a community that starts by admitting that we are broken people, that we are not perfect, but rather we are failures. It starts the other way around. It's a community of broken people for broken people, for sinners. It's a community where in humility, we are frank and honest about our own shortcomings. And all of that is possible because Christian unity is based on Christ's work, not ours. Christians all confess that they are in need of a Savior, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Because it is a community of broken, hurting sinners, we bear with each other in love. And yet, even as we are hurt by others, even as we see others straying into error, we nevertheless seek to cultivate unity throughout the church. I wonder, does this appeal to you this morning, to be part of a community of broken people where you're welcome, even if you're not perfect? If so, here is the free offer of the gospel set before you this morning. It is simply this, to confess, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not perfect. I need him to save me. Maybe you've already made that confession, but you've looked at Christian unity, sort of ecumenical movements with a glance askew as some sort of optional add-on for those who have extra time or something like that. Paul says, no, it's not optional. You must be eager to maintain unity within the church and between churches. We must be eager to guard the work the Holy Spirit is doing. And so I ask you, are you working for this kind of unity, this kind of community within our church? Are you doing the hard work of digging glass out of hurt relationships, maybe? Of of confronting people that need confronted, not meanly, but speaking the truth in love? Are you doing the hard work of getting to know Christians in other traditions who do things goofy, who do things different than us? It's not easy, but it is necessary. Let us pray. 
Gracious God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, we come to you as people in humility, recognizing our own brokenness, our own shortcomings. And yet we ask that through your word you would encourage us and build us up and train us that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called us. Let our eyes be fixed steadfastly upon Jesus Christ our Lord and let us walk following after him. When we hurt others or we are hurt by others, Lord, let us not abandon this path, but rather bear with one another in love. We can't do that in our own strength, Lord, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can lovingly forgive each other. We can lovingly bear with one another. We can even lovingly confront each other when necessary. Lord, let us be eager to maintain Christian unity within this church and with other churches that we might visibly proclaim to the world what is true in your sight, that we are one church united to one Lord by one Spirit. We offer these prayers in the name of that Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the power of that Spirit, your Holy Spirit. Amen.